This is my favorite anecdote about any Supreme Court justice ever. Hey, everyone. This is Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. On this premium episode of 5 to 4, Peter, Rhiannon, and Michael are talking about former Chief Justice William Rehnquist. Rehnquist was appointed on the eve of the court's post-Warren-era shift to the right. In the 1970s and early 80s, Rehnquist repeatedly failed to persuade often anyone else on the court that state sovereignty could trump federal congressional power. But by the 1990s, he had a five-justice majority that was striking down federal laws right and left for stepping on the toes of the states. His federalism gave him cover for rolling back gains of the civil rights movement. But, as you'll hear, Rehnquist's objection to equal rights wasn't simply principled opposition to big government. It was also a deeply held personal belief. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have left our rights brittle and stale, like your aging Easter candy. (laughs) I'm Peter. I'm here with Michael. Hey, everybody. And Rhiannon. R.I.P. Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, a real one. (laughs) We lost a real one. Everyone is always a little bit annoyed that we're always like a week behind the ball with our metaphors. Yeah. Not this time. Because we record a week in advance. Not this time, because I know (laughs) that Easter's coming up and this will be coming out shortly after Easter. Yeah, that's right. Highly relevant. And our analytics show us that most of our listeners are devout practicing Christians. Absolutely obsessed with Jesus, Mm -hmm. the man, the myth, the legend. (laughs) (laughs) This week, premium episode, of course, and we are talking about Chief Justice William Rehnquist. Yeah. Rehnquist was the chief justice before John Roberts and oversaw the court during the first phase of its strong reactionary shift following the civil rights era. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He was deeply conservative and helped lead the charge to roll back the jurisprudence of the Warren Court on abortion, criminal defense, federal power, and a host of other issues. Also... He was a segregationist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or as it is said in Spanish, un segregacionista. Nice. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) My wife and I are uh, plotting out honeymoons, (laughs) and uh, we're not sure where we're going yet, but we're going to land in a Spanish-speaking country. Okay. Mm. So I'm going to get my Duolingo rolling. Yeah. And I thought, why not learn some Rehnquist-adjacent terms? Sure. You starting with Muzzy? Remember that? What? What is Muzzy? I am aware of that as only a slur for Muslims. He's <laughs> <laughs> no. a big blue monster who teaches you Spanish. Oh, no, I never heard of it's that. Like, like little cartoons. No. no, no. That's disappointing. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This fact that Rehnquist was a segregationist is relatively undercovered in American media, maybe because admitting that the most powerful legal figure in the country until 2005 was a segregationist is a little too, like, Staring your demons in the face for our nation to handle. Mm -hmm. Perhaps. But that is the space where we here at uh, 5 to 4 thrive. Yeah, this is really where we flourish. So we're going to talk about it. Mm -hmm. That's right. But first, what I imagine is uh, some star sign shit (laughs) from Rhi. As 
Yeah, that's right. And you're welcome. First of all, thank you. Big shout out to our soldiers on the ground, five, four soldiers who were out today trying to help me figure out William Rehnquist's birth chart. I had people putting me in touch with descendants of Scalia. We did track down a granddaughter of William Rehnquist. She has not responded to my request, but you know what? I might have figured this out anyway. William Rehnquist, absolute total dipshit, born in October 1924. This is, this guy was old. Yeah. Before the Great Depression. Anyways, he's a Libra son. He is a Scorpio moon and likely a Sagittarius rising. Can you believe it, boys? I cannot. A Scorpio moon? <laughs> I can see from your notes that Scorpio moon is something of significance. Yeah, yeah. There's, what is that, approximately 19 exclamation points after Scorpio moon? That is the most significant to me. Let me just kind of sum this all up by saying moody does not even begin to cover it. All right. Mm -hmm. This is dark. This is emotionally volatile mm -hmm. for Billy Rehnquist. Mm -hmm. Anyways, Rehnquist grew up in Milwaukee. His paternal grandparents immigrated from Sweden. His dad was a salesman and his mom worked at a small insurance company. After high school, William Rehnquist served for three years in the military in like this was like the mid 1940s. And then he used the GI Bill to attend Stanford. He got a bachelor's and a master's in poli-sci at Stanford. And then he got another master's degree in, in poli-sci in government, actually, from Harvard. Okay. Then he went to Stanford Law, where he graduated first in his class in 1952. He would be ashamed to see what it had become from like a free speech perspective, I imagine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Rehnquist would be leading the charge with... Yeah. He would have opened fire on those students. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, um, he was known even back then in law school in the early 1950s as a staunch conservative. Apparently, he wrote in his diary during law school that he hated Justice Hugo Black. What a lame fucking diary. Yeah. <laughs> Here's a lesser known tidbit about Rehnquist's time in law school. It is known that he was already staunchly conservative, right? Little lesser known information is that he dated and proposed to later fellow Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Mm -hmm. They attended Stanford Law together. Mm -hmm. They were partners in moot court competitions and they started dating. They were only together a few months before Sandra Day broke up with him. Rehnquist took responsibility for that, said he was, quote, presumptuous and inattentive. But later on, when he went to clerk at the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. he wrote her a letter saying, quote, I know I can never be happy without you. To be specific, Sandy, will you marry me this summer? <laughs> I mean. Good Lord. What the fuck, bro? He proposed by written letter? letter? By letter. Yeah. By letter. So Sandy, uh, Sandy said uh, no and ended up marrying another guy that she met at law school, which, by the way, was apparently the third proposal that she got. Sandra Day O'Connor could absolutely get it, was getting it, did get it over the course of her law school career. Three men. 
three men. I imagine that she must have been like one of tops, just a small handful of women at the law school, right? I feel like this is one of those situations, right? Like it's like, oh, well, if I were the last man on earth, mm -hmm. right? She was like literally like one of four women at Stanford Law at right. the time or something. If that, yeah. right? She could choose from the best guys at Stanford and she was like, it's not this dude. Mm -hmm. Sure, she's got statistics working in her favor, but like, fuck it, I'll say it. Sandra Day O'Connor, fire pussy. <laughs> <laughs> so three men proposed to her, including a future chief justice of the Supreme Court that she would serve on the Supreme Court with. Yeah. But back to Rehnquist. He graduated and worked as a clerk for Supreme Court Justice Robert Jackson, during which time he wrote a very monstrous, sick memo that we will talk about in a bit. After clerking, he worked in private practice in Phoenix, and he served as the national manager of Barry Goldwater's presidential campaign in 1964. Mm. Rehnquist worked in the Nixon administration beginning in 1968. He served there as assistant attorney general in the Office of Legal Counsel. You know, he did a lot of shady shit that the Nixon administration did during that time. He got nominated by Nixon to the Supreme Court in 1971. Should note here that apparently it was... Henry Kissinger, mm. perhaps one of the worst fucking people ever born, who initially proposed Rehnquist for the spot on the Supreme Court. Mm. Kissinger noted back at that time, Rehnquist is pretty far right, isn't he? Mm -hmm. So, huh. you know, we'll talk in a little while about Rehnquist's like ideology. Kissinger never satisfied with his body count. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, yeah that's right, right, that's right. So we'll talk in a little while about Rehnquist's like ideological legacy on the court. But just want to highlight that long before he was a Supreme Court justice, he was a staunch, zealous conservative far to the right of many people in even the Nixon administration. Mm -hmm. Right. That's right. <sighs> So we should probably talk issues, you know, mm. the meat and potatoes. Now, Rehnquist has a lot going on here. So I think we're going to narrow this down a bit. So if you think that there's some line of jurisprudence we don't cover that we should have covered, reach out and maybe we'll, we'll work it into another episode sometime later. You know, mm -hmm. sure. We could definitely make a part two William Rehnquist episode. Mm -hmm. We thought about doing... A two-part Rehnquist episode. We did. There's enough. Yeah. There is enough. There is enough. So let's start with our favorite amendment, the 14th Amendment, the backbone of so much of the good the court did in the uh, civil rights era. As a quick refresher, we've talked about this many times on the podcast, but there's this idea called substantive due process that says, you know, the 14th Amendment says you can't be deprived of your liberty without due process of law. And the idea is that liberty is kind of expansive. It means more than just you can't be put in a cell. It means mm -hmm. you can buy birth control and you can procreate and you can marry who you want, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's that idea. Right. So Rehnquist presided over this sort of, at first, slowing of the expansion of this substantive due process whole line of cases and then rolling it back essentially and he was on the right edge of the court throughout so we just did a case in this line mm -hmm. the cruzan case about bodily autonomy for the right to decline life-saving treatment mm -hmm. 
for people who are terminally ill or otherwise incapacitated. And we talked about this concept there. Uh, he was also in dissent in the infamous Planned Parenthood v. Casey case in the early 90s, which essentially rolled back the protections in, of Roe v. Wade. In his dissent that he wrote, he called for the full reversal of Roe v. Wade, a call that would eventually be answered uh, just last year in Dobbs. But this was in the 90s. This guy wanted to roll back Roe v. Wade. Like he was very conservative. Yes. He said there's no right to privacy in the Constitution. And these other rights I mentioned, he wanted to relegate to a lesser status of quote unquote liberty interests that the government could heavily regulate, if not entirely regulate away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think a lot of people, because the Rehnquist court is sort of associated with a failure by the right to overturn Roe, I think a lot of casual court watchers might not realize that Rehnquist himself was a staunch opponent from the very beginning. That's despite his best efforts. That's not because of his shrewd deal-making or anything like that. Yeah, Right. It was only the moderate conservative alliance that did not include him that ended up saving Roe in Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Right. Right. And Rehnquist is on the court when Roe is decided, one of two people to dissent in Mm -hmm. Roe. That's right. So he's against it from the beginning. Yeah. And a theme you will hear in this podcast is that he had very bad opinions in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and he never really shook them. Right. And, and right. this is just yeah. one of many examples of that. Yeah, exactly right. So another aspect of Rehnquist's ideology and certainly his tenure on the court and while he's chief justice is he's aggressively anti-criminal defendant stances, mm-hmm. anti-defendant criminal procedure jurisprudence. This ranges from the Eighth Amendment into habeas, general criminal procedure, EDPA, which is the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act statute that basically makes it harder for people to get into federal court to review their state criminal cases. Mm-hmm. Rehnquist is all over all of these kinds of cases with extremely conservative anti-criminal defendant stances. And, you know, just want to note in sort of like historical context here, you know, during Rehnquist's tenure as chief justice, certainly the prison population in the United States is booming, right? It is a time in the legal system that we are beginning to contend with a mass incarceration problem, Mm -hmm. right? A problem of extreme cruelty in the criminal punishment system. And the Rehnquist court is there at this time, definitely, solidly, centrally making that problem worse. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just to start off before he's chief justice, but he is on the court in 1972, he dissented in Furman v. Georgia. That case effectively put a national moratorium on the death penalty in 1972 based on the fact that the death penalty was shown to be unconstitutionally arbitrary and capricious. Rehnquist there dissenting, saying it's not a problem that the death penalty is arbitrary and capricious. That's what makes it fun, he said. (laughs) Glad we figured that out and it's not arbitrary and capricious anymore. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Of course, the death penalty was reinstated, sort of re-greenlit by the Supreme Court just a few years later. But Rehnquist drawing the line in the sand that early, that is, you know, just the year before he dissents in Roe v. Wade, right? We are talking again 
about a long legacy of this man being fucking awful. Fast forwarding a few years in another death penalty case. This is about the Eighth Amendment. Rehnquist is in the majority in a case called Penry v. Linaw. That is a 1989 case that says that executing people who are intellectually disabled is fine. It is permissible under the Eighth Amendment. It is not cruel and unusual punishment. This, by the way, is a majority opinion by famously known moderate Sandra Day O'Connor. The fire pussy majority opinion. <laughs> He's like, Sandra, you can write it if you want. Come back to me, Sandra. You got this one, girl. You know, Rehnquist is here. And when this case is finally overturned in 2002 in a case called Atkins, Rehnquist writes an incredibly cruel dissent in that case, saying, you know, all of the data used by the majority public polling, evolving standards of international norms, and analysis of proportionality in punishment, you know, all sort of leaning towards the idea that obviously executing people who are intellectually disabled is cruel and unusual punishment. Rehnquist is saying none of that counts because it's not objective. What's objective is apparently just a sort of bare, raw reading of the Eighth Amendment by itself and what Rehnquist thinks about it. And you can't trust numbers. You have to trust your gut feeling about what the Eighth <laughs> Amendment means. <laughs> That's what's objective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Another really fucking sick case. We've talked about it on the podcast. Herrera v. Collins. This is a majority opinion written by William Rehnquist. This case says that a claim of actual innocence based on newly discovered evidence does not get you into federal court, right? This basically means that there is not an independent constitutional claim under the Eighth Amendment or anywhere else in the Constitution that you as an innocent person will be executed, right? There, That is not a constitutional claim, mm -hmm. according to Rehnquist and according to the Supreme Court. Really sick stuff. And then finally in this realm, just another, again, sort of high-level, top-level survey of where Rehnquist is at in these cases, a case called Lockyer v. Andrade. He's in the majority here. He doesn't write the majority opinion, but voting with the majority. This is a case about the Eighth Amendment and habeas, actually. This is about the California Three Strikes Law, a guy who, under the Three Strikes Law, was sentenced to 25 years to life for stealing, like, $150 worth of videotapes. Rehnquist, again, voting with the side that says that it must be an extreme and rare case that qualifies as grossly disproportionate and therefore illegal. This, though, doesn't count. 25 years mm. to life for stealing $150. That's not grossly disproportionate punishment. No, because at the time of the founding, $150 adjusted for inflation was actually an enormous <laughs> amount. <laughs> That's logic, baby. <laughs> Put me on the court. That's objective. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and yeah, by the way, if uh, you want to hear more about the three strikes law cases from the Supreme Court, perhaps next week we will be around mm. to talk about mm. it. Stay tuned. You know, it's weird. I wouldn't have thought a noted segregationist racist piece of shit would be so hard on criminal defendants yeah. at a time when we're imprisoning black Americans. That's yeah. surprising. It's baffling. Yeah, weird how those two things go together. <laughs> yeah. And we will be digging into it. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to untie this knot. <laughs> Make sense of it. <laughs> Another one of the lasting legacies of the Rehnquist court and Rehnquist himself was the court's impact on federalism. Federalism, of course, is the divide of power between states and the federal government. 
But when conservatives use the term, they are using it mostly to avoid saying states' rights out loud now that we've all learned what that means, you know? Right. Hold on. Derechos de los estados. You're sort of like natural rights. Is that really derecho, like turning right in Spanish? I don't know. It is the same. Yeah. It is? Wow. Like derechos humanos is human rights. I don't think anyone at the Federalist Society meeting is going to correct me. (laughs) (laughs) Now, one big aspect of this is the Commerce Clause. We've only done a couple of Commerce Clause cases, so I'll give a quick overview here. Under the Constitution, the federal government has a limited set of powers. One of those is the power to regulate interstate commerce, commerce between the states. Starting in the New Deal era, the Supreme Court began to interpret that power very broadly on the basic theory that economic activity taking place within a state still impacts economic activity in other states. So it's still interstate commerce that the federal government can regulate. Our economy is sort of all connected. Right, right. We can buy stuff from other states and it all is the same. Yeah. Right. Now, conservatives did not like this. This is one area where they thought law and economics, no good. You cannot mix and mingle law and economics in this specific circumstance. When it comes to the economy. Right. mm -mm. They thought it gave the federal government too much power and, you know, it allowed the New Deal to restructure the relationship between the federal government, the states and the people. And they liked it even less in the 60s when Congress used the Commerce Clause power as the basis for several key sections of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And then the Warren court upheld those laws. Conservatives claimed that, you know, the federal government did not have the authority under the Constitution to regulate civil rights due to what I'm sure was genuine concern about the scope of federal power rather than (laughs) a vitriolic opposition to civil rights. Right. Right. Now, this leads us to what A lot of people, a lot of scholars view as the primary project of the Rehnquist court, the extensive effort to pare back federal power, especially by paring back the scope of the Commerce Clause. And they did that by striking down nearly any law passed under the Commerce Clause powers that was not very expressly about economic activity. So in the course of Rehnquist's tenure, the Supreme Court strikes down the Violence Against Women Act in U.S. v. Morrison, the Gun-Free School Zones Act in U.S. v. Lopez, uh, you can see in those cases, in the language of those cases, a very clear targeting by the court of Congress's ability to use the Commerce Clause to regulate anything that they deem a, like, social issue, right? Exactly, yeah. And on top of this, Rehnquist is aiming to narrow other sources of federal power. The court very famously narrowed the scope of Congress's ability to enforce the 14th Amendment in City of Bernie v. Flores. The court revitalized the 10th Amendment as an affirmative limitation on federal power in various cases. All of this has helped create a political ecosystem where the federal government's ability to pass proactive and progressive legislation is severely hampered. And I think it's especially pernicious because it sort of manifests in what you don't see, right? Like it's the legislation that no one bothers trying to propose or even draft, right? Right. Because they know it won't comport with the prevailing view of the scope of federal power. Um, And I think these holdings are a large part of why meaningful civil rights legislation 
is essentially a thing of the past in this country. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think throughout this episode, in all of these spaces, Rehnquist's views, Rehnquist's writings, his ideology sort of pull the mask off on what is counterintuitively called a judicial restraint, (laughs) right? Like all of this jurisprudence is extreme examples of judicial activism, right? Overturning acts of Congress, stepping in in all of these cases to limit the federal government's power. And in another area of the law, a general sort of conservative opposition to litigation, right? Having open doors to the courthouse, essentially. Rehnquist is against that, too. And in this sense, these cases that I'm about to talk about, it's all about keeping plaintiffs out of court. It's all about shielding corporations and government officials from liability. It's limiting what remedies you can get if you can get into court and can sue in the first place. And, you know, just want to note that Obviously, major American corporations have poured millions of dollars into funding and winning exactly this kind of litigation because when people cannot sue them or they don't have to pay that much when they are sued and they lose, they are dodging accountability and protecting at all times their profits. And the Rehnquist court and William Rehnquist himself was at the center of much of this throughout the 80s and 90s. In the context of just limiting remedies, there is a case called Alexander v. Sandoval. It has to do with Title VI. Title VI of the Civil Rights Act prohibits discrimination on the basis of race or national origin. In this case, Alexander v. Sandoval, the state of Alabama had passed a law that said driver's license tests would only be offered in English and not any other language. So Martha Sandoval sued, saying there was discriminatory impact here on the basis of national origin, right? Disproportionately, this law discriminated against people who were not born in the United States, right? Because they wouldn't speak English. Even though she couldn't show that there was like explicit intent by lawmakers to discriminate against people not born in the U.S., there was a lot of discriminatory impact, right? The impact of this law was that many, many people who were not born in the U.S. could no longer take the test Mm -hmm. to get their driver's license in Alabama. The Rehnquist court says there is no lawsuit here. You do not have a private cause of action in this situation under Title VI. So just one example of, right, like there is this expansive civil rights legislation passed. We have this huge statute on the books to protect people's civil rights. This is the Rehnquist court stepping in, limiting that scope, keeping people out of court on these lawsuits, right? Mm -hmm. I also, I want to just flag for the listener. Later, we'll be talking a little bit about what like academics in the media said about Rehnquist. And one thing that I consistently saw when I was researching was that this was a man that didn't like to interfere with popular will and like legislative action. Just Mm. keep that in mind as we work our way through these. Yeah, right. Exactly. And I wanted to loop back to something Rhee said a couple of minutes ago. She talked about him as being sort of activist. So I wanted to quote this guy. I can't find this quote. I have so many fucking tabs open for this. But if you studied theory in law school at all, you probably read Alexander Bickle, who was one of Rehnquist's contemporaries as a clerk in the early 50s on the Supreme Court. And he was a guy who wrote a lot as an academic about what he called the counter-majoritarian difficulty of the court 
overruling Congress and the passive virtues. And he criticized activist courts and praised judicial restraint. And he's sort of the father of this whole line of thinking. And uh, there's a line where he says something to one of his friends to the effect of Frankwist it literally has the entire span of like political opinion to his left. Like there is nobody to his right, essentially. Like right. the father of judicial restraint as a theory is like he's a right wing zealot. Yes. It's right. clear to everybody. Yes. Yes. And yet his legacy is. Well, we'll talk about it later. So another case, limiting remedies, limiting the damages, whatever you can win in court. This is a Rehnquist majority opinion, Correctional Services Corporation v. Malesko. This is a case about Bivens claims. Uh, We've talked about Bivens before. Bivens is a case that establishes that you can sue federal officers for damages when they violate your constitutional rights. Here, a man imprisoned in a private federal prison facility suffered a heart attack after officers made him climb multiple flights of stairs, even though he had a heart condition and he had an official exemption from having to climb stairs in the prison, Rehnquist says there is no Bivens claim here. You cannot sue these federal officials in this way because actually this is a private corporation, right? They're acting under color of federal law and they're contracting with the fucking federal government to cage federal prisoners. Mm -hmm. But Bivens, according to Rehnquist, doesn't extend to these situations. So you cannot sue in this way. You have no remedy here. Moving on to just like limiting damages. So say you do get into court, you actually win, right? You've sued a corporation or the government or whoever and you win. Well, the Rehnquist court was on a mission really from the beginning to limit the amount of damages you could win, right? We read an article in preparation for this that showed that over 16 years, the Rehnquist court considered at least eight cases regarding just limiting damages. We talked in the Boyle episode just a couple weeks ago about the kind of explicit conservative project from around the mid 1970s, definitely through the 90s, around like drumming up the idea that damages in tort cases were running wild, you know, that plaintiffs are just able to sue and they get millions of dollars and they're not deserving. And the cost of that kind of litigation for corporations or for the government is just a bridge too far, right? This is an output, like we talked about, it's an output of law and economics. This is about restricting access to courts by explicitly disincentivizing lawsuits. And so this is a huge project of the Rehnquist Court and an area that that no one says is judicial activism, Right. Right. And and they're not just ruling on these cases by, like, interpreting existing laws. The Rehnquist Court made literal new constitutional protections against excessive damages when there were literally none beforehand. The Mm -hmm. Supreme Court had not said the Constitution fucking protects you from excessive damages. They were literally saying it is a violation of the due process clause for damages to be too high. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just think about where they are declining to expand the due process clause in basically every other fucking area. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's this huge project of limiting damages for plaintiffs in court. 
And then this is all really just scratching the surface of the Rehnquist court, guys, like Mm. the criminal defendant stuff, the criminal procedure jurisprudence, the death penalty, this limiting access to courts, restricting the power of the federal government, a qualified immunity, Mm -hmm, the doctrine of qualified immunity, protecting especially police officers from being sued. That really gets developed under the Rehnquist court, right? You are restricted more and more and more in your ability to sue police officers, any kind of really state and federal officials for violating your constitutional rights. Yeah. (laughs) I think now it's time to move on to what you might categorize as the main event. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have made the claim up top that William Rehnquist is un un segregacionista. (laughs) And... (laughs) And you might be thinking that that is an aggressive claim, an aggressive claim to make Mm -hmm. about a man who died in 2005. Yeah. And you might be asking yourself, what evidence do you have that William Rehnquist was a segregationist? (laughs) And now we're going to lay out the case, (laughs) the case and not just the case, but like a quick bullet point version of the case. Yeah. Mm hmm. So, Michael, I think we'll we'll go to you first. As we've noted, Mr. William Rehnquist was a clerk on the Supreme Court before he was a justice on the Supreme Court. Yes. And he was a clerk right around the time that Brown v. Board of Education was percolating up through the legal system. And he wrote a memo to his uh, justice, Justice Jackson, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, let me let me pull that up in my one of my eight hundred <laughs> tabs I have open here, so we can we can uh, go through this memo together. It is called a random thought on the segregation cases. Random, it's random. <laughs> a random thought on the segregation cases. It is barely two pages long. It's you know a page and a half max, and I'm just going to cut to the chase. The the last paragraph which reads, I realize that it is an unpopular and unhumanitarian position for which I have been excoriated by quote-unquote liberal colleagues, but I think Plessy v. Ferguson was right. Uh, That was the case that said separate but equal was okay (laughs) and gave the green light to segregation (laughs) and should be reaffirmed. And then uh, he... Put some academic nonsense in there after that. And that's it. Yep. <laughs> Good stuff. Yep. That's the longest short of it. Oh, and then it, it ends WHR, William H. Rehnquist. Mm-hmm. In case there was any doubt about who wrote this, who it is saying this. Yeah. He tries to bullshit his way through this in the 70s and the 80s under oath. First, when he's nominated to be an associate justice of the Supreme Court. And then when he has to do a new round of hearings to be elevated to uh, chief justice of the Supreme Court, in which he claims that he was trying to summarize his justice's views at the time. Right. right. He, he was saying that he was asked to do it by the mm. justice, either because it was the justice's views or because it was like a devil's advocate sort of thing that he was supposed to be doing, right? Right. Hard to square with the fact that his justice was in the majority in uh, Brown v. Board. Right. 
And that the name of it is a random thought on the segregation <laughs> cases. Right. I mean, you know, you just read through the last paragraph, which is fully in the first person. Yeah, yes. the quote is, I think Plessy v. Ferguson was correctly decided. Right. right. So he gets asked about this under oath, and all of the obvious things that we just pointed out are brought up to him, right? Mm-hmm. That's a pretty weird title for... Uh, <laughs> A memo that's supposed to be expressing the views of like your the justice and not you. And then also you speak right. fully in the first person. Mm-hmm. I swear he's just like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's weird stuff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's like nothing provided. He's just like, yeah, no, yeah. I don't know. No answer. He just says that wasn't my view. I think that would be news to William Rehnquist at the time because he mm-hmm. was out in force criticizing the court pretty strenuously in speeches and in the paper, writing op-ed pieces in uh, U.S. News, I think it was, criticizing the court right after Brown is decided and Uh using a lot of coded or not so veiled language about states' rights and all Mm -hmm. the same shit we are very familiar with. Yeah, And that is echoed in this memo, right? This idea that the court would be imposing its morality, right. which he doesn't approve of. Derechos de los estados. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think the fact that there's a memo titled, My Personal Feelings About the Black Race, <laughs> by William H. Rehnquist, <laughs> that says that he supported separate but equal, and then he came out as a harsh critic of the court right after Brown v. Board, is pretty good smoking gun evidence mm-hmm. that he was a segregationist, and he perjured himself multiple times before the Senate in denying that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, moving on to more opportunities that Rehnquist readily took to perjure himself in front of the Senate. Oh, yeah. Uh, some more history, some more evidence that he was a racist piece of shit. This part, a little bit, I think. This is my favorite anecdote about any Supreme Court justice <laughs> ever. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's really, though, like barely addressed ever. Yeah. Like the first time yeah. that I heard about this was recently. But there is plenty of evidence and strong allegations that William Rehnquist was not only involved, but in some circumstances in charge of a group of lawyers who were working on the ground in Arizona to intimidate minority voters especially in Democrat-leaning precincts. Mm -hmm. He was director of, quote-unquote, ballot security operations in poor minority (laughs) neighborhoods in Phoenix. This was part of a project called Operation Eagle Eye. It was well-financed and explicitly backed by the RNC at the time with the goal of suppressing the vote of racial minorities. Mm -hmm. Explicit programmatic tactics of Operation Eagle Eye were purging voter lists through vote caging, Distributing deterrent paraphernalia like deceptive mailers, indicating a voter who had committed a traffic violation would be arrested after voting, mailers that encouraged minority voters to write in Dr. King's name for president, knowing this would nullify their votes, and deployment of poll watchers to challenge voters on Election Day. Voters were asked humiliating questions. They uh, were demanded to show citizenship papers by these poll watchers. They were told that they had to prove right then and there that they could read, particularly if they spoke in broken English. 
As early as 1958, William Rehnquist was one of these poll watchers in Arizona. He was directly and personally involved in challenging voters at the polls, challenging that they could speak English and whether they could pass a literacy test, challenging whether they were American citizens, taking fake pictures of them to scare them into thinking that they were being surveilled and would be prosecuted in the future. When asked at the time if taking pictures of people at the polls like this was not harassment, he laughed and said, there's no film in the camera. Which makes it worse. <laughs> that's, it not, it worse. that's not. How an, can it be harassment if I'm just trying to intimidate them? Right, right. Exactly. I'm not actually taking photos of them. I just right. want them to be scared that I'm taking photos of <laughs> yeah, them. Exactly. And all that implies. Right. <laughs> yeah. This is in the midst of Jim Crow, right? This, we're yes. still in Jim Crow, and yes. he is intimidating voters at the polls. Yes. But that memo is not his personal right. opinion. <laughs> right, yeah. exactly. Sure. These poll watchers would rush up to people and demand that they read a copy of the U.S. Constitution. There were reports that this literally got physical at times, with Democratic poll watchers saying that they had to push William Rehnquist out of polling places as he personally accosted and antagonized people trying to vote. This guy was chief justice for two decades. Yeah. This comes up in the hearings about elevating him to chief justice in 1986. He is asked about this by the Senate. He completely denied involvement. And then he was accused of perjuring himself for lying on the record. This is probably the biggest controversy of his confirmation hearing, right? These allegations mm -hmm. that he was a segregationist, that he was engaging in voter intimidation. But of course, he was confirmed, right? He was confirmed by a 65-33 vote, which I think is the largest number of nay votes ever for a person who would be chief justice. Mm. And I mean, worth noting, I feel like 65 to 33 doesn't seem like a terribly weird vote for a Supreme Court justice now, but Scalia went through 98-0 the same year. Right, yeah. right. So this was completely anomalous. Exactly. Very unusual. Yeah. You know, there's also a good amount of evidence beyond the the fucking voter intimidation. Also evidence that he opposed a city ordinance in Phoenix in 1964 that prohibited racial discrimination in public places, you know, like theaters and restaurants. He would say that this was because, not because he was racist, but because mm. he believed in absolute property rights. You own mm. the property, mm. you get to say who comes. He's not racist. He just thinks people who own businesses should be able to exclude black people. He thinks he should be allowed to harass minority voters at the polls. Right. He opposes racial integration in schools, but it's that's all because of deeply held constitutional principles that have nothing yeah. to do with his feelings about racial minorities. Mm -hmm. For sure. Glad we cleared that up at the confirmation hearings and he got to chief justice. Yeah. yeah. Also, by the way, another thing that came up in his hearing was that he owned a property with a restrictive covenant on it that did not allow the sale of the property to a member of the quote unquote Hebrew race. Right. Can't sell to Jews. Restrictive covenant. This was a summer house he got in like 1974, I want to say. Yes. He said, oh, I have no knowledge of that covenant. That right. someone found in the deed. And then he had to come back a couple days like, later and say, actually, here's a letter from my attorney. I found a letter from my lawyer explaining <laughs> the covenant to me. Uh, so he purchased a house that had a deed that said you can't sell to Jews. 
And then his lawyer was like, hey, uh, you can't sell this to Jews. And he was like, all right, uh, I'll put the down payment in. <laughs> right. And I'll make a mental note not to sell it to a Jew, yeah. I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, chief justice. And fully a lawyer. I'm not going to do anything about it. Right. Yeah. He's a lawyer. Like, <laughs> he is on the Supreme Court when this happens. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I didn't get the timing right. <laughs> he saw a deed that was like, you can't sell to Jews. He was a Supreme Court justice and he was like, I'll buy it. Jesus Christ. And he's like, I am definitely buying it because those covenants were usually pretty locally geographic, right? Oh, so that my meant God. that meant no Jews in the neighborhood. He was pumped. Mm-hmm. He was fucking pumped. So now you know about the pro-segregation memo. You know about the voter suppression efforts. You know about the anti-Hebrew covenant. <laughs> and so by now you're probably thinking... The Hebrew race. I, I, I'm sorry. I just, I love the anachronism there. Like, it's not even like mm-hmm. the Hebrew religion, like the Hebrew race. Right. No, converts you could sell to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so by now, you know, you're probably thinking maybe this guy was a bit of a racist, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Un racista. (laughs) (laughs) But maybe you are not so easily convinced. Maybe you're saying, but Peter, can you really say that he's racist when he only wrote one pro-segregation memo and helped do voter intimidation and only signed one anti-Jewish deed? Yeah, is that really? Maybe if he wrote another pro-segregation memo, I'd be convinced. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Guess what, folks? <laughs> Let me tell you a story. <laughs> a little bit of history here. Throughout the 50s and 60s, Southern jurisdictions strategized about how to oppose, avoid, subvert their obligations to desegregate schools following Brown v. Board. The county of New Kent, Virginia, came up with a plan wherein students were automatically reassigned to their school from the prior year unless they requested transfer. They called this a freedom of choice plan. The result was the perpetuation of existing segregation. In 1968, in a case called Green v. New Kent County School Board, the Supreme Court unanimously struck that plan down, saying that the districts needed to take productive steps to desegregate. In 1970, William Rehnquist was working as an attorney for Nixon. Yep. And at the apparent request of the administration, he drafted a proposed amendment to the Constitution that would overturn Green v. New Kent County and solidify, quote unquote, freedom of choice school plans in the Constitution itself. Constitutional. Again, this this was right. Constitutionally protected end run around Brown v. Board. The entire purpose of this was to constitutionalize de facto segregation. Uh, The Mm -hmm. plan was never made public, but it was unearthed at his 1986 hearings, I believe. Now, in his defense, I suppose, sometimes due to social pressure and professional obligation, a person might find themselves in some form defending segregation in both their (laughs) personal and professional lives several times over the span of a few decades, signing an anti-Semitic deed Uh every now and then, right? That's just kind of how life goes sometimes. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I just don't want anyone to think 
that that means that he had an ideological perspective about segregation in schools <laughs> that influenced his decision to overturn anti-discrimination orders in Kansas City in Missouri v. Jenkins in 1995, for mm. example. Uh, yeah. Definitely. Or his majority opinion in Board of Education v. Dowell, where he held that a federal desegregation order must be ended after achieving its goals, even where evidence showed that the end of the order would lead to resegregation. I just don't want people to think that because of the several decades span where he repeatedly supported segregation, that that means that his opinions were somehow ideological. Right. 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 I don't no. I don't want to be unsportsmanlike about sure. it, you know. <laughs> So I think it's fair to say that he was a man who loved the law. Yeah. And hated black people. Objective interpretation <laughs> of the Constitution. <laughs> and those two had nothing to do yeah. with one another. His views on one, his views on the other, yeah. totally separate. Right. And I'm proud of him for keeping it separate. I also, by the way, wish, you know, we're a podcast. Every now and then we are inhibited by our format. And I wish that y'all could see how fucking stupid his hair looked when he was young mm. just an absolute <laughs> moron looks like a complete fucking buffoon he also was we mentioned this in uh one of our episodes early episodes he sort of famously adorned his robes with like gold flair in the 90s when he presided over bill clinton's impeachment hearings mm -hmm. uh, because he had seen an opera <laughs> iowa lanth and he saw something on, on stage that he really liked and was like, I want to look fly too. <laughs> and so he gave himself a little gold flare on his on his robes. What a fucking loser. <laughs> Just like flaring up his robe for impeachments. He's like, this is important. I'm going to go in with my coolest robe. You think Sandra saw him and was like, I made the right choice. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, Sandra, check it out. I put the gold, I put the gold flare on the robe. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been talking a lot about how this guy's a racist piece of shit and how it infected all of his civil rights and commerce clause and criminal defendants rights cases. And that's all true. It's also worth noting he was a, a real partisan hack and a case that is, of course, near and dear to the heart of, of this podcast. Our first episode covered it. Bush v. Gore is notable for... Rehnquist's concurrence. As a reminder, Bush v. Gore said there was sort of an equal protection argument that ballots on recount had to be sort of treated alike, essentially, and Florida was not doing a good job of treating them uniformly. Rehnquist wrote a concurrence that gave birth to the independent state legislature theory as a respectable academic idea about the law. Mm -hmm. This is a moronic idea that we really, I think, handily took apart in our episode on it a few months back, which in its most basic form just says that state legislatures have special plenary powers in the monitoring of their elections, in the structuring of their state elections unrestrained by their governor, by their state Supreme Courts, by their state constitutions. This was a radical thing at the time. It remains radical. It was in response to a movement at the time of conservatives who were concerned that Al Gore would win the recount 
And they wanted the conservative legislature in Florida to send Bush electors to the Electoral College anyway. Right. And this was William Rehnquist letting everybody know he was on board with that plan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. That if they had let the recount go and Al Gore had won, he was there to give them the thumbs up. Yeah. Right. We can just declare Bush the winner anyway. Right. But you don't have to do that because we're doing it for you. And what the time was viewed as like a sort of almost like cutesy little concurrence, right? Where mm. that no one paid like a ton of academic attention to and is now at risk <laughs> of becoming the majority opinion of the Supreme Court. Yeah, yes. the, the law of the land. Yeah. 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 We have William Rehnquist to thank for first articulating that at the Supreme Court. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think we should probably talk about like media and academic coverage of him. When he died, there were a good amount of people pointing out that he was sort of rough around the edges, you know? Mm -hmm. I saw Dahlia Lithwick saying some accurate things, for example. However, a lot of the coverage was just shockingly sycophantic. Probably the most... Notable was an April 2005 piece written by Jeffrey Rosen in The Atlantic titled Rehnquist the Great (laughs) with the subheading, even liberals may come to regard William Rehnquist as one of the most successful chief justices of the century. Mm. Now, I'm not sure. Are you guys familiar with Bedridge's Law of Headlines, which says that any headline that asks a question can be answered with the word no. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. I didn't know that's what it was called, but I've heard of that. Yeah. 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 So it's Rehnquist the Great with a question mark. And mm-hmm. I do believe the, the law holds. The yeah. law holds. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. That'll be a no. Now, Rosen is a hack and I don't want to uh, spend like too much time digging into the details here. Yeah. All time garbage, quote unquote, journalist. It's a piece for the Atlantic. I mean, you know, this is... Mm-hmm. Nonsense. It spends a lot of time praising his interpersonal skills. There's a lot of focus on Miranda, which is basically the one area where Rehnquist moved left over the course of his career. Most interestingly to me, Rosen defends the segregation memo. (laughs) (laughs) Unbelievable. Unbelievable. He says, quote, as jarring as these memos appear now, they are consistent with the views of many political scientists today who argue that the court, except in rare cases, neither can nor should thwart the will of a determined national majority and that it invites political backlash when it attempts to do so. So what Rosen has done is whitewashed the content of the memo down to its least objectionable form Mm -hmm. and then been like political scientists largely agree with this. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, perhaps. Why don't you go take a poll of political scientists and see if they agree with Brown v. Board? Right. Yes. yes. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a better poll? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's like yeah. any excuse to be made for these pieces of shit, anything to avoid actually diving into the fact that for 30 something years, we had a segregationist on the Supreme Court. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I was talking to you guys in prep about the legacy, the ideological legacy that William Rehnquist was sort of like pinned to by the media and how much I think that really did infiltrate and influence sort of the the general public's idea 
of his time as chief justice, right? I was telling you guys, like, I had a history professor in high school who was an older white guy, probably, I think, center-right kind of normal guy, but very encouraging of students with progressive views, very encouraging of us talking about sort of, you know, important political and current events stories at the time. And I remember when Rehnquist died, I was in high school, and this teacher was talking about how moderate William Rehnquist was Mm -hmm. and how he was such a good steward as a centrist of the Supreme Court. And it's really baffling. Like, I hope that what we've done over the course of this episode is like really, really show this man was far, far right. He was a racist. He was sexist. He was against the expansion of individual rights, of any sort of social justice movement, of any sort of civil rights wins. And we have a media that I think because there weren't some of the massive conservative culture war wins during his time on the Supreme Court, Mm -hmm. right? They didn't overturn Roe v. Wade, right? And so all of the sudden that kind of gets laundered into, yeah, this whitewashed legacy that somehow Rehnquist is maybe sort of less staunch conservative and is like sort of Mm -hmm. this like centrist guy but that's not what the record shows, right? right? That's not that's not anywhere near what his writings were, what he did before he was a Supreme Court justice, any of his jurisprudential views. They are all far, far right. This is an extreme conservative who was on the Supreme Court for a long time. And in terms of the modern court, this court today that we talk about all the time is just as much a product of William Rehnquist as it is mm-hmm. Roberts or Scalia, right? right. Who uh, Scalia often lauded as like the most influential conservative of that time. It is just as much a product of William Rehnquist. This is the overturning of Roe, this modern iteration, this conservative supermajority and how they act. This is a Rehnquist dream come true. Yeah. Yeah. Another reason Rehnquist gets sort of painted as a moderate, I think, by academics is that he was sort of procedurally a moderate in terms of like he wasn't a severe textualist like Scalia. Mm -hmm. Right. He was more of uh, what academics call a formalist, which means he starts with the text, but he'll look at legislative history and if there's ambiguity and he thinks about the intent of the Congress and Mm -hmm. blah, 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 all that mushy stuff. That makes him seem moderate because textualism is very severe and like strict originalism is very severe. But his formalism, his moderate, you know, methodology was all in the service of hard right ideological ends. Right. And you have to be like severely law school brain damaged to just excise the entire ideological project from his work and be like, well, compared to Scalia, he was kind of moderate uh, with uh, regard to legislative history. They're conflating ideology and methodology, right? right. right? They are of the belief that textualism is conservative. And so if you're not a textualist, you are moving to the left, but you're not. Textualism is operating in service of conservatism, right? It is subjugated to conservatism. Right. And 
everything Rehnquist did was subjugated to his ideology as well. Just like that's right. You know, all of the rigid rules that Scalia promoted about how he interprets laws in the Constitution, those things are subjugated to his ideology. Right. You know, the way that you interpret law is not ideology. Right. That's not what that fucking is. And you have to spend decades in a law school talking to no one but lawyers to think that that's what it is. Right. That's right. So I feel like we've painted a pretty strong picture of this guy. But I do feel like if you leave this episode with like an archetype in your head about him, you know, there is a quote I I want to uh, play for you. This is from Lee Atwater, who was a conservative operative, sort of a Karl Rove type in the 60s and 70s and 80s, who talked about the way conservatives and the Republican Party would play to uh, white racist animus Mm -hmm. over the decades and how their strategy had to change while still essentially riling up the same racist instincts in their voters. And content warning, slurs are coming. Yeah, that's right. I think we are going to beat them out, though. Got it. You start out in 1954 by saying, by 1968, you can't say, that hurts your backfire. So you say stuff like uh, force busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. And you're getting so abstract now, you're talking about cutting taxes, and all of these things you're talking about are totally economic things, and the byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than whites. I think that quote like really encapsulates Bill Rehnquist's entire arc as a human being. In the early 50s, you have him, mid and late 50s for that matter, you have him very explicitly engaged in pro-segregation advocacy right? Arguing for the upholding of Plessy v. Ferguson to his justice as a clerk, intimidating voters at the polls. This is virulent racism in a barely disguised form. But then throughout the 60s and 70s and 80s, he learns to disguise it. And, you know, the quote mentions busing. He was writing a constitutional amendment to prohibit busing. It mentioned states' rights. He came out talking about states' rights and criticizing the court overstepping right after Brown v. Board. This is him to a T. And so when you hear that quote, that's him. That's his career. That's his life's work encapsulated. Yeah. Yeah. And if it's disgusting and repugnant to you, good. Right. Because he was a disgusting and repugnant person. Yeah, I think the real lesson of Rehnquist is about how close we are to a part of our history that conservatives want to pretend is a distant memory. That's right. right. Rehnquist was the chief justice of the Supreme Court until 2005. Yeah. YouTube existed when he was still alive. Right. (laughs) Like his generation spent most of their lives hiding their real views because they knew how repulsive they were to everyone else. And they left the shadows of those views with the next generation who are still on the court, who in fact have control of the court. Everything Mm -hmm. Scalia ever believed, everything Sam Alito believes, everything Neil Gorsuch believes, it all evolved from the same toxic sludge that spawned William Rehnquist. Right. Anyway, burn in fucking hell, you freak. Rest in piss. Yeah. God, I fucking hate Rehnquist, man. 
Everyone's been asking us to do this for three and change years, and I understand being antsy, you know? It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck this dude. Next week, Ewing v. California, we'll be talking about three strikes laws and whether they are constitutional. Unfortunately, William Rehnquist had the last word on that. Yeah. <laughs> so you can imagine how it went. Follow us on Twitter, 54pod. Follow us on Instagram at 54pod. Thank you for subscribing. You are God's chosen sons and daughters and non-binaries. <laughs> There's got to be a less problematic way to say it. Children. <laughs> would be the non-gendered way to say son and daughter. Hmm. <laughs> I gotta say children now? <laughs> Liberals don't even let you say God's sons and daughters anymore. Thank you for subscribing. You are all God's chosen children. Angels. Which means Rehnquist would not sell you. <laughs> <laughs> Five to Four is presented by Prologue Projects. Rachel Ward is our producer. Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons provide editorial support. Our production manager is Persia Verlin. Peter Murphy designed our website, 54pod.com. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY, and our theme song is by Spatial Relations. Those little chicks, peeps, how shitty that candy is. They have defenders. So watch out. Peeps got shooters. Peeps got shooters. <laughs> peeps goons out here. I, th- I see it more with peeps than candy corn. Peeps is bad, but it's also fundamentally marshmallow, right? Whereas candy corn is just wax. Repulsive. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm more likely to, to defend candy corn than peeps personally. I'd rather eat like grandma candy than, than candy corn. The grandmas have some good candy. I have to grandma's say. Grandma's <laughs> candy is bussin'. <laughs>